are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. The last few weeks have all represented big firsts for our show. We hosted our first union leader, our first cotton farmer, and now our first leather manufacturer. This is part one of our conversation with Vijay Swana. Vijay recently wrapped up his time as a CSR and a sustainability manager for Asia Ten. He is originally from India, though he has studied in the U.S. and spent significant time in China, where Asia Ten is based. As a result of the pandemic, he's recently left Asia Ten and relocated back to India to be nearer to his family. He now works freelance. We know that leather, like so many other issues we cover, is a loaded topic. We feel strongly that figuring out how to do something better requires more mutual understanding and less abstraction. Who are the people who comprise the leather supply chain? What are their relationships like? What are their pain points? Always wanted to know how leather is made? Then part one of this conversation is for you. Vijay gives an overview of the leather production steps and situates Asia Tan within that. What's their relationship with shoe factories, and what's their relationship with brands? Part two of the conversation is all about inputs. What types of inputs does Asia Tan need to make its leather? Where do these come from? What's their relationship like with their suppliers, and how does this impact the traceability of leather? And finally, in part three of this conversation, we zoom back out. Given the relationship upstream and the relationships downstream, and the complexity of the sustainability issues facing the leather industry, how did Asia Tan decide where to start its sustainability journey? And what's Vijay's take on the role of government regulation? Our episodes this week are thanks to our collaboration with JZ Fabric. The Fabric project is commissioned by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development. And supports the Asia textile industry in its transformation towards fair production for people and the environment. Vijay was a speaker on the fourth edition of JZ Fabrics online seminar series called "Getting Through the Crisis Together: Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry." If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured Underscore Podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. To find out more about the GIZ Fabric Project and the seminar series "Getting Through the Crisis Together: Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry," check out the links we've put in our show notes. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Vijay, thank you for being here with us. Tell us a bit about Asia Tan and your story. Sure. So,、uh, Asia Tan is、uh, based out of southern China. We're、uh, a small tannery. We basically make leather, and、uh, we produce material for some of the world's biggest brands. Whether it's Nike, Adidas,、uh, VF Corp,、uh, Asics, Wolverine, Ariat, some of the biggest brands actually come and source their material from us.、Uh, we are 
based in a small town called Jiangmen, which is around like an hour, hour and a half from the big city of Guangzhou. And our trading office is from Hong Kong. So uh, we are an LWG-weighted, uh, gold-weighted tannery, which is basically the leatherworking group. And gold rating is the highest uh, uh, award that's given to a tannery based on their environmental sustainability. So we've been uh, gold-rated for the past many uh, years. And uh, we are a t- we would call ourselves a small to a mid-sized tannery. We have around like 300 employees uh, during peak times. And uh, uh, we were founded in the mid-90s. Uh, so we are around like 30 years old. And uh, we have a pretty diverse group of uh, employees. We have employees from uh, Hong Kong, Canada, US, India. All our uh, technical uh, people are from India and obviously uh, parts of China. So uh, we're a small, mid-sized tannery, and uh, we really do enjoy working with some of the world's biggest brands because it's quite a challenge, and we look forward to it. I'm curious, why are the technical people from India? What's the history? Is that because India is such a has so much expertise in leather production or? Yes. India would be one of those places uh, along with Italy where uh, a lot of uh, uh, leather is produced and uh, they're actually have, they, uh, India has pretty good universities where uh, leather is actually taught as a, a degree, you know, so Southern India, parts of Chennai, uh, leather is actually one of the biggest uh, uh, employees for uh, employers rather for uh, uh, the people working in leather. So a lot of technical people do come from India. Uh, and again, Brazil is another one of those places where you have uh, a huge leather industry. So I think uh, India, China, Italy, and parts of South America, these are places where uh, leather tends to be focused. And people working mm-hmm. in these industries come from uh, uh, these places generally. And I'm just curious, I don't know whether you know this or whether you're able to speak to it. So it's, it's totally fine if you're not. But like, it's it's a pri- is it a privately owned company? Yes, it is. So I don't know. Again, I don't know if you know this or or whether you can speak to it. But I'm just curious. Like, do you know what the motivation was for the owner to start it? I mean, how does somebody wake up one day and say, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start a a leather a leather a leather factory? Right. Uh, to be honest, uh, the owner of the company has been in leather industry for even before we moved to China. So earlier, leather tended to come from places in the West. But uh, once China proved to be the place where manufacturing was easier, basically set up industry, it just made sense to move to China because even labor was much cheaper. So uh, mm. the owner of the company took this initiative to move from the West to China to set up this tannery. It's people who have, it was founded by people who have been in the leather business for generations? Right, right. And how about you? How did, what's your story? How did you end up in the fashion industry? And um, tell us a little bit about your role with Asia Tan. All right, this is going to be funny, but uh, my background is actually in uh, mathematics and statistics. Uh, I did my uh, undergrad and master's in the States. Uh, my master's was in actuarial science, which is more like a statistical uh, uh, background. So when I was hired at Asia Tan, I was basically hired to forecast uh, production from sampling because uh, what we saw was it was impor- important for us to be able to buy raw materials so that uh, we can produce based on what the sampling was. So we would receive a sample based on how the sample is doing, we would be able to forecast production. And in all the meetings that we had with brands, one of the first questions that came up was, uh, so is this material 
environmentally friendly? What is the water consumption? What is the energy uh, consumption? What is solid waste generation? So these were the things that came up in many of these meetings. And in 2015 was when when I joined Asia Tan. Uh, sustainability was a key word. You know, it was a buzzword. So uh, we knew that going forward it would play a very important role in uh, production. We decided to set up a, a sustainability department just to tackle these issues. So you were, I want to like just make sure I understand. So you were actually, you were hired initially to look at forecasting. So you, when you say you were sampling, I guess you were talking about different types of leathers and raw materials and that you were trying to calculate and anticipate how much of those materials you were going to need. Is that correct? Right. Uh, pretty close. So sampling of different kinds of leather, because we don't make one kind of leather, we make multiple articles. For example, it could be different optics, you know, it could be different feel. So it's just not uh-huh. one leather product, but we have, I think, around like hundreds of hundreds and 200, 300 types of leather products. So we, we make finished leather, right? Okay. So one of the things that was important for us in production was to be able because, again, this is one of those things because leather, you need to have raw material and it takes a while for the raw material to come because uh, we get our raw material from different parts of the world, you know, from different continents. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that you can just put an order in for the raw material today and it will be in your doorstep within a week. <laughs> right. It often takes months, you know. Okay. So it's important for us to have the right amount of raw material. So it was important for us to forecast how much raw material will be required to make the finished product, which is the leather. Right. And we're going to come back to this because I want you to give an overview of the steps required, uh, you know, that, that are both required to make the leather, but then also where the leather goes after that. So we'll come back to that. But let's go back to you and your story and how you ended up doing sustainability work. Right. So, again, this is I'm good at data management I'm good at data analytics. But once I got into sustainability, it really became my passion, you know, because it Honestly speaking, I didn't work in the manufacturing industry before I joined Asia Tan. So it was something that I really didn't give too much thought to. It was almost like, all right, here's a piece, here's a shoe that has lead in it. All right, what is the environmental footprint? I never really cared to even know. But once I joined, I mean, it was eye-opening, you know, because manufacturing is not uh, the most glamorous industry, I would say. And we have to admit the fact that uh, manufacturing is polluting sometimes, you know. So unless mm-hmm. we accept the fact that pollution does occur in the manufacturing industry, it's not possible for us to improve. So once we reached that stage, I knew that we had to come up with a product that we feel proud of putting out there environmentally. Because again, the brands know and let us know that their customers were looking for products that were more environmentally sustainable, You know, that had a lower carbon footprint. So these were the things that we were getting back from the brands and these are the things that we had to implement in our tannery to make sure that uh, going forward the environmentally sustainable materials was one of the things that we focused on. So you set up this sustainability department for Asia Tan I guess in I just want to situate in terms of timeline around 2015, around 2016. Right. Yeah okay and the trigger for it really was the types of requests for information that you were getting um, from the brands that you worked for. Is that right? Right. So um, can you give us an overview of the steps required to make leather for somebody who has no ideas, people like us who are don't know very little about leather and which of those processes Asia Tan does? 
Not sure. So uh, leather making, to just break it down on a skeletal level, includes three steps, right? One is tanning phase. The second is a retanning phase. And the third is a finishing phase. So the tanning phase is where you take the raw hides from, say, a cow, goat, sheep, or a pig and convert it into a material that can last longer. You know, that's something you can make into leather as a finished product. For example, raw hides, they rot, right? So tanning is a phase where you actually make it such that it does not rot, it does not decompose. So it basically increases the life of the hide. That's the tanning phase. The next two phases are retanning and finishing. So what Asia Tan did was we used to buy tanned hides, which is for... Uh, it's all, uh, hides that have already gone through the first phase of tanning, and you would retan and finish the leather. Retanning is where you put it basically into a drum and uh, basically add color to it, give it the base color. That's called the crust, comes out from that phase. And the crust is then finished with different uh, colors or maybe like to give it the right feel, to give it the right optics. So that's the third phase, which is the finishing phase, which is where you have finished leather. So Asia Tan was uh, basically doing the second and the third phases of leather production and our raw material suppliers took care of the first phase of the leather production. Okay. So you were buying from people who were doing the tanning. And then if I understand correctly, the second phase was about like uh, the color and the third phase was about like finishing and, and other types of details. Is that right or not right? Absolutely correct. So we would get chrome tan leather, which is called wet blue. You know, so it would be mm-hmm. a blue, bluish color hide. Mm-hmm. And we would basically add, see if someone wants a black leather. So we basically put it through a drum process. We're going through a drum for like hours, you know. Mm-hmm. And then we give it like that uh, base color of black for a mm-hmm. black product. And then once it comes out of the drum, you dry it out. And then it goes to the finishing stage where you mill the leather, which is basically put it in another drum so that it gets that leather texture. You know, those lines and... Mm-hmm. the pliability that leather has. So that's the finishing stage. And then is it like fabric? It gets sold on a roll then to assembly facilities that make shoes out of it? No, uh, leather and gets bags? sold as a hide. So each each hide basically mm-hmm. is one piece, you know? So, oh, of course. Duh. In hindsight, oh, now I feel stupid. But yes, of course. Right. So each piece is whatever amount of square feet it is, gets sold as a piece. So we sell based on square footage. So each leather piece would say, for example, a animal hide coming from, uh, a cow hide coming from South America would probably be around like, for our purposes, would be like around, say, 45 square feet. So we would basically sell, we would basically cut into half and then each basically sell sides, you know, just so that it's easier for us to process the leather. So make a hide that's 45 square feet or cut into half, make it 25 square feet sometimes, and then process it. So each piece is then gets shipped to the shoe factory. So this might be another stupid question, but is each, like, if you're selling by hide, right, which is basically, I guess, per animal, yeah. is is each part of, like, that hide sort of considered equal? Like, is it... Are they is is a whole hide like sort of equivalent in terms of quality and durability and the types of products that it can be used for, or are different parts of the hide better suited for different types of uses? Absolutely. So uh, the best leather comes from the backbone, you know. So mm-hmm. the bellies get stretched out a lot more, so they're much thinner, and also the neck has a lot more folds. So mm-hmm. the best 
shoes get made from the tightest parts of the animal hide, which is around the backbone. So oftentimes what happens is when you resell the whole hide, right? So the hide goes to the shoe factory and the shoe factory has to basically cut the hide based on different components that they're going to use it in. So there are certain parts of the component, or so certain parts of the hide, sorry, that will go into, say, the tongue, you know? This could be a loser mm-hmm. part. But the major part of the component, like the vamps, get done from around the backbone. So that's interesting. So basically you're selling, because what I was going to ask was like, so are you selling different parts of the hide to like different types of, of assembly facilities, depending on the types of products that you're making? But what I understand is that, in fact, no, you are selling the whole hide to one customer and... Um, that uh, they are then basically sorting out and and separating the parts that they want to use for different things. Is right, that right? Exactly. That's absolutely right. Because the other thing you have to uh, remember is leather is a natural product. So there could be wrinkles, you know, there could be tick marks from like insects sitting on the hide, you know, or there could be scratches from basically the cow going through a brush and getting scratched. So these are the things that are natural aspect of leather, but they are things that do not go into certain parts of the shoe. They're, these things go into different parts of the shoe that usually don't get looked at more often, you know? So it's, we oh. sell the hide and then the, the uh, shoe factory basically picks out the parts and puts it in the places where they feel it's appropriate for. That is so interesting because, so when you first started describing this process, I was thinking about like our own experience or my experience, like in a cut and sew factory where the incoming goods that we were receiving were primarily rolls of fabric. And my first thought was like, okay, when we do incoming goods inspection of those rolls of fabric, like we would, you know, run them through a light machine and look at like, uh, you know, whether there were spots, whether there were inconsistencies, like the different, you know, any types of quality issues that there were. And we were, we were doing digital dye sublimation. So most of the fabrics that we were receiving were white fabrics and that we were then sublimating and, and printing on later. And whenever we did get fabrics that had sort of slight imperfections on them or whatever, it was always a challenge within our warehouse to organize it in such a way that we knew like that we would sort of set those because also we were in Cambodia. So to ship the fabric and our fabrics were mostly coming from China. So to ship those fabrics back to our supplier was, was pretty difficult at that point. We had like a sourcing office in China that was also doing inspection before they got loaded on the boat for exactly this reason. But, you know, sometimes things still got missed. And then we would sort of set aside those fabrics to be used for products that were going to be printed with dark designs and dark patterns on them, because then it wouldn't be so obvious as opposed to like a light or a white design. But it was a real headache because from an inventory management perspective, it's all the same item code, you know, like right. you don't have different item codes for the the white, the you know, the white fabric that, ha- you know, whatever type of fabric it might have been, the white fabric that had like slight spots on it and the, the one that, you know, that that didn't. Um, so it was always like from a management perspective, it was it was a headache. And now the process that you're describing is like it sounds like that times 100. Right. And then it's very similar. <laughs> Well, I think a lot more difficult. So, and then, and then my second thought is like, one of the things, of course, that like when we were costing products, so we were making apparel and when we were costing products, like we would look very carefully at like basically the markers and the layouts. So like, for example, if we were 
putting together a quotation for a t-shirt, we would look at like, you know, the layout of that fabric. We know, let's say it was, a you know, a meter and a half wide. And we knew that like we could fit, I don't know, X number of panels on that piece of fabric. And we had software that actually laid it out for us so that like we could optimize optimize the the layout and reduce scrap so and and we use that when we were doing costing because like that our material our fabrics were really big were the you know the bulk of our cost and so we needed to know exactly how much wastage we were going to have and that we needed to sort of build into our cost model Um, and now I'm thinking about like how would you even go about doing that because these pieces must all be slightly different shapes sizes and like the laying out the pro like the you know cutting out like the panels that you might need to produce a shoe or a handbag like that must be a really tedious job compared to making t-shirts where the fabric's all the same size and you can kind of automate that a little bit better right so i mean the principle is basically the same what we also did was as soon as we got our raw material which is the tanned hide to a tannery we would first grade it right based on the raw material so there are certain uh, hides that would be a lower grade than some of the other hides. So you'd ha- break them down into three different grades. So based on uh, the no- amount of tick marks, scratches, open defects, and closed defects, you know. So once oh. that is done, then each material uh, based on the grade or each hide based on the grade would go to a different leather product, you know. So there are certain mm-hmm. leather products that we can finish better. Uh, to cover those defects, there are certain leather products that are more, uh, which is what I'm looking for, but they're less finished. So it's more, you could see more of the defects if you put an, a hide with more defects in it. So we often had to grade at the very first stage. And then again, it's once it gets to the crust stage, then you see that, oh, these defect, defects are not getting covered. So maybe we'll take it out and then use it for another product. So it was almost a, always like a, a mix and match. You know, there's certain times. So each and every stage, we would have like a QC uh, analysis uh, where we'll have a look at the first stage at the raw material and the second stage at the crust and the third stage of the finished product. And then oftentimes the good thing about leather is you can refinish into a different product, you know. So once it gets to the final stage, if it's still not up to par, we can take it out and then refinish it into something else by changing the process, changing the chemistry or changing the physical process. So there is a little bit of flexibility when it comes to that. But I agree that it has to be absolutely uh, well done at the first stage to prevent uh, changes in the uh, second and third stages. So once we get the raw material graded and then accordingly uh, allocated to the different finished materials, everything we can make from it. So did, this was all done manually, you, by the way. This was all done manually. Yeah, that's luckily. that's like a, it's it must it sounds like a very different difficult process to kind of like well, to standardize basically that there's always a lot of like that sort of the nature of the work means that there'll always be a lot of like sort of case by case decision-making and scenarios. Is that right? right? Absolutely right. Because that's, that's what uh, the natural form of leather does, right? Because each and every height is absolutely different from the other. There's no two heights that would ever be the same, whether it's size, whether it's the shape, whether it's defects. So uh, we basically had, a group of people who've been with the company for, I would say, like 20, 30 years, actually even from the very beginning, who basically had the experience. This is where we, Asia Tan put its emphasis on educating its workforce, you know? So these people are the ones who impart knowledge to people in the, the team to make sure that the grading is absolutely right. If 
it gets missed in the first stage, all right, there's someone else who will catch it, you know? So uh, mm. this is where uh, employee education is very important when it comes to uh, material manufacturing. My first thought is, wow, that in that factory, I think the incoming materials inspection must be very important. Actually, it's super important, actually. And my, my second thought is, uh, well, in that case, you can't really settle the payroll like per piece. You can't really use a piece rate way to settle the, the payroll. Is that right? Because, because it's a case-by-case -case decision. When you receive a, a piece of leather, you need to evaluate the quality of the leather and quickly decide, okay, uh, what's the rate of the leather and what are we going to do, which area goes where, and so on. So it uh, makes me feel each piece of leather is a small process of decision-making. Right. Uh, so Jesse, so when we receive our leather, or rather when we buy the leather from our supplier, uh, we ask them to grade it based on what they feel is the grade. So, for example, there's different grades of leather, right? It's called A grade, B grade, C grade, all right, for example. Mm -hmm. So, A grade is the best quality leather. You know, it's the least number of def defects. There's B grade and there's C grade based on... One thing you've got to look at is how much, how many defects are in the leather or what the looseness of the leather is. So, when we buy it, we expect a certain qu uh, quality of the leather. So, we make sure that that leather is of that quality when we receive it, all right? So we know what the quality of the leather is going to be when we receive it. So now based on that, we make the leather, different leather products, it gets finished. And then when it's finished, we have an understanding with the factory, shoe factories, who also expect a certain grade of leather. For example, they want, say, 70% of A-grade leather. They want 20% of B-grade leather is fine with them, C-grade leather. Again, the, this, the uh, concept I need to introduce over here is cutability of the leather, right? So how much of the leather can be cut and used? So they, right. for example, if they want like a 95% leather, 95% of the total piece needs to be used in the shoe. You know, then there's obviously 90%, 85%. So there are different grading that we have to make sure that it uh, comes within that grade when we send it to the shoe factory. The same thing when we receive it, we need to make sure that the leather that we receive is within a certain grade. Are there a lot of disagreements? about like between the various these various so between like the people that you're buying the tan leather from and then the the shoe factory that you're selling it to i mean is it common that people would disagree like one party has graded it a and the next party says no actually this is b honestly speaking between the shoe factories and us there's always a little bit of difference because they see the item as all right say that's 80 percent for us it's more 85 to 90 percent you know because then the issue of claims comes in right you either have to replace a product or you have to basically give them a claim and then say all right this is the final price then so mm -hmm. oftentimes yeah that's what I, that's that's where my mind is going <laughs> right so oftentimes they need a set number of square feet to finish their say hundred thousand uh pairs of shoes right so it's not like oh Let's just forget it. We need to provide them with extra material to make sure that they can finish the 100,000 pairs of shoes. What, but when it comes to our suppliers, luckily, we've been in business with our suppliers for a long time, almost like 20, 25 years in some cases. You know, So we kind of have set up a, a way in which we know exactly what we're going to get. So there's less of a problem with our suppliers, but there definitely is uh, somewhat of a confrontational relationship that we have with the shoe factories, some shoe factories more than others, you know, but that's why we have a team that basically spends most of its time at shoe factories 
trying to explain like, all right, these items can be cut in this way, this way. Because again, leather is one of those products that people look at it differently. You know, different people look at a, a leather hide and see different defects, you know? So we make yeah. sure that we also educate the people who are cutting at the factory level to make sure that they see from this point of view, like, all right, this part can go into a part of the shoe that you can use it for, you know? So again, oh, so you're doing important. education at the shoe assembly facility. Uh, I wouldn't call it education, but rather imparting knowledge. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's it's not all right. This is a course, and this is what we're teaching. But oftentimes, we work with them together to make sure that they look at it from this, a different angle, rather than just trying to like, all right, this part doesn't go in the shoe. We're like, all right, yeah. this part will go into this part of the shoe. So it seems like like a like that that relationship between you and the shoe factory that you're selling to is a pretty critical one, and that the trust there is pretty important. And I'm curious, like, so were the shoe factories that you were selling to, were they also in China or were they elsewhere? Because like, I'm thinking about the logistics and, and the potentially the barriers to establishing a strong relationship there. Uh, honestly speaking, over the years, we've seen like a, a decrease in our, uh, business coming from Chinese factories and a lot mm -hmm. of this manufacturing has actually moved to Vietnam and Indonesia, you know, mm -hmm. uh, at least for the shoe factories that we dealt with. So mm -hmm. I would say maybe like seven, eight years ago, uh, China was probably 60 or 70% of the business from uh, shoe factories. But now it's more around 30% is China. I would say around like a majority is Vietnam and Indonesia. And again, Bangladesh is another one of those countries where uh, we're seeing a lot of, uh, industries uh footwear uh, uh manufacturing industries being set up so bangladesh is an, another one of those countries that we did some business with so how do you maintain these relationships then with the shoe factories yeah exactly because like you, you like you described it it's, it sounds like that's sort of where the critical moment is where there might be disagreement about like the quality or things like that um and it it and and actually i'm thinking about like our own my experience in cambodia where our fabric suppliers were in china and it was it was actually we had a sourcing office in china so that they could sort of take care of those relationships you know um but i i'm curious how you guys approach that then right so we did have a team that was strictly based uh in china and their whole job was basically traveling to all these different factories in china vietnam india you know uh indonesia and uh, even Thailand in some cases, uh, their whole job was basically being in touch with the people at the shoe factories and making sure that the material they receive is okay. If it's not, then let's try to find a solution to make sure that we both are happy. You know, So we want mm -hmm. to make sure that, again, we don't want to be a confrontation. We want to make sure that they're happy because in the mm -hmm. end, the job was to make sure that the right material goes to the right shoe so that the brands can sell it to the customer, you know? Oftentimes, yeah. things would uh, happen where, all right, we could not reach consensus. So oftentimes, a brand would have to get involved. But uh, oh, that, really? was, that was almost like a, a last case scenario. You know, that was like not something that was usually uh, the way to go for us. I mean, I see there are three parties, the brand and the shoe factory and uh, the facility you worked on. But then how the brand positions themselves in terms of uh, the evaluation of the laser quality? So our sales reps would meet with the designers at one of these brands. And they would have like, all right, we're making this new shoe. You would like to use your leather, you know? So 
what can we do? So we'd go to the sampling stage where they'll make some, uh, make some shoes out of it, see how it works out. The designers will approve it, you know. And then finally, the costing will be done, I guess, between the brands and the shoe factories and the forecasting of how much material will be needed and that will go into, like, say, how many number of pairs of shoes that the brand needs. And then the shoe factory would place the order with us for, say, 100,000 square feet of material to be going into 50,000 square feet, uh, 50,000 pairs of shoes. So our, we were right in the middle where we dealt with also the brands and also dealt with the shoe factories. The designing part and how our material goes into which shoe would be done by the brand designers. And we would just present them with different materials. Oftentimes the designer would come back and tell us, listen, this, this piece of leather looks great. Can you make it in this color? Or can you make it a little bit softer? Or can you make it a little bit more malleable? You know, or, the grain is too bold. Can you make it with a softer grain? So they'll work with us on these changes that they want in the shoe. And then once those changes have been finally finalized, the shoe factories would basically give us an order when they receive the confirmation of the number of pairs to be made from the brand. And then we would ship our material directly to the shoe factory. So oftentimes, we have to make sure that we keep every part happy. Make sure that the shoe material, uh, the hides get to the shoe factory on time, and also make sure that the designer is happy with the final product that they're receiving. That's so interesting. So the brands actually deeply get involved into the raw material design and uh, to finalize the raw materials to smooth the relationship between between your facility and the shoes factories. That's, that's quite interesting. Hundred percent. Yeah. The design absolutely comes from the brands. Yeah, and that's interesting because I suppose maybe like in for certain types of apparel products, that's where the material is really important. That that's also the I would imagine that that's also the case. We were producing pro- like uh, products. The uh, factory that I that I was that we were working for wasn't producing products that where the material was like a super important part of the piece, and so like the brand really wasn't as involved in it. Um, and but what I want to m- m- clarify is so the brand is involved in the design of the leather, which makes sense because the leather is is a I mean especially a shoe like that's a, a product where the material or a handbag or whatever the product or the material really matters to the performance of the product. Right. But they're not buying the leather from you. You are still selling it to the shoe factory, and they are still buying the finished shoes. So it's interesting that like, although there seems to be a a really close relationship between you and the brand from a design perspective, it's not a direct relationship from a financial perspective. On that note, we've talked a lot about your relationship with the brand, your relationship with the shoe factory. In part two of this conversation, we're going to look the other way. We're going to we're going to get into the details about, you know, what are your raw materials, what are your inputs, and what are your relationships like with those suppliers. So if you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to tune in for part two, which we've also released today. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. 
To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.